Good evening. I've called this press conference here today because I have a very important thing that I want to talk to everyone about. It's about this election, okay? It's being stolen by the Democrats because there were a lot of states where I was winning by a lot. Okay, we're talking about a lot, many, many votes. Okay. And my election observers, who the Democrats, by the way, by the way, are trying to keep away. They're trying to keep them out from observing the voting. Why is that? Okay, they're keeping them away. My observers, they're looking at the voting through binoculars in some cases. And what they're seeing is these states where I was winning by a lot, they're finding all these extra ballots. Okay, they're coming from the mail and all of these ballots are for Joe Biden. No one knows where they're coming from. They're just coming through the mail. We don't know who wrote these ballots. We have no idea. Okay, and they're trying to steal this election from our voters, from our beautiful voters. And I'm not going to let that happen. But I have found out that Joe Biden and the Democrats, they're working with a man called the Hamburglar. Okay, you might be wondering who is the Hamburglar. Well, I will tell you. I've known the Hamburglar for a long time because of my very good friend, Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald, very successful, very successful restaurant owner. Okay, very successful clown. Very funny guy, actually. Tremendously, tremendously funny guy. And, uh, and he works with Grimace. Okay, I don't have any particularly strong opinions on Grimace. He's a large, large purple fellow. Okay. Okay, guy. No problems with him. But their great enemy is the Hamburglar. What the Hamburglar does is he steals hamburgers. Okay. He's not exactly a burglar. It's somewhat misleading. He's more of a thief. He's a thief of hamburgers. And he's working with Joe Biden to steal this election. If a man is prepared to steal a hamburger, he will absolutely steal a vote. You may have noticed, I had many, many hamburgers in my life. I have a lot of hamburgers. I have far more hamburgers than Joe Biden does, or than he ever will, okay? And we're looking into this very strongly because now we're seeing a situation has begun to arise where I have less hamburgers than before. Still a lot, but my hamburgers are being taken away by Joe Biden, by the, by the hamburger and by the Democrats, okay? And what they're doing with these hamburgers is that they're... Uh, they're trying to feed them to the Antifa super soldiers to make them very, very large. They're getting very large. They're getting very, very big, okay? They're trying to get them engorged and very large so that they can fight our brave law enforcement officers. So what I have here is a warrant for the arrest of the Hamburglar and all of his known terrorist associates effective immediately. Thank you. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to this episode of TF, that podcast you are listening to at this, the very present moment, mm. here, uh, back in the end of history. Uh, it started uh, it, started, it started up again for a little while, but it's over again. It's, it's stopped. It turns out that it was just history's death throes, and no one has to worry about anything anymore, ever. So Join awesome. me in the time, Dojo listener. <laughs> the, the podcast where you're always listening to it at the present moment. <laughs> Uh, he's been like this all week. <laughs> he's been like this all week. Fuck being all Jokerified and week. Gorkified. Yeah, yeah you've, exactly. ta- you've taken the Gorka pill, which is just a horse pill. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, right. it's me, Riley. Uh, I'm with Alice Milo and uh, Sebastian Gorka. And Seb- <laughs> Milo, 
who will be going to the bathroom and being replaced by Sebastian Gorka throughout the episode until, of course, he's killed by a sniper and Milo just has to be Milo for the rest of the episode. Ah, yes, the IRA cipher, sniper, Father oh, McMurphy. no. <laughs> um, and we are also joined by uh, Derek Davison, the editor of Foreign Exchanges and a contributor to Discontents blog alongside uh, TF Stalwarts, uh, Connor Southard, and Patrick Wyman. Derek, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, I'm I'm pleased to see we've already pivoted from everybody celebrating the Biden win to pun- punishing the left for its intransigence mm-hmm. uh, in record time. Really, this is as early as I've seen it after a U.S. presidential election. So it's so, it's been so cool watching everybody do the, the left and like transsexuals and black people are mm. the reason why we lost with the word lost hastily scrubbed out and replaced with one i've yeah. enjoyed that very much except the reason why we nearly didn't win yeah right, right exactly we're just reaching for anything we can use at this point oh yeah well um so how, how are you feeling about history being over again are you considering doing uh, some nihilism uh, i'm going to brunch although i don't know if any place is open yet for for brunch but uh, <laughs> that was my plan. I was going to make a Bloody Mary, actually. So maybe I'll do that later. Text Charlotte Clymer. I'm sure she knows all the best places. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she is uh, sipping her coffee. Um, mm. So, hey, um, I've got a couple of um, I got a couple of quick hits uh, with Derek on. We are here mostly to talk about foreign policy. Specifically, uh, we are talking about um, goal like golfy sovereign wealth funds in as much as they pertain to foreign policy and like how that affects like did you just make up the word golfy yeah no golfy sovereign wealth funds like the kind that trump has yeah it's it's an anglicized version of khaliji um nevertheless uh we uh, want to do two uh two quick hits first of all uh news items i would say in terms of things that matter to TF, like we have to talk about the U.S. presidential election. Mm, do we have to? Can I have election outside today? <laughs> there, there are two things. There are two things that matter to TF about the about the U.S. presidential election. One is its pertinence to you know, British politics, which is uh, not immaterial. Owned. Yeah. The only only good thing about Biden really is that he's going to absolutely ruin Boris Johnson's day, and I am here <laughs> for that. I'm here for it 100% of the time. In that particular scenario, I will stand the hell out of Joe Biden. Um, I, I, and the other one is Prop 22, which is more about like de- dem- Democrats being Democrats. Yeah, but that's let, more in our wheelhouse. But like, yeah. I'm genuinely into the first like anti-Anglo action president. You know, mm. oh, yeah. it's the first the first president who's probably donated to the IRA in his <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> this man this man has bought an armalite that has been used in London Terry. <laughs> I mean, this is really like the, the Chad donating to the IRA Jeremy Corbyn versus the Virgin donating to the IRA Joe Biden, isn't it? <laughs> um, so basically, let's 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 review. Um because if you remember right, um in 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 our our, our salad days of, of sort of um you might say uh, 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 optimism. Join me in the salad days, Mr. Biden. <laughs> no. God damn it. No, but it, it, we were talking. We were talking. We- the worst part is this is my fault. I introduced him to this bit. And- <laughs> <laughs> 
Alice opened fucking Gorka's box. Yeah, <laughs> but but uh, in in the let's say in in season one era, uh, we sort of talked about the the various sort of impossible dilemmas and impossible trinities that made up the logic of Brexit, which was that basically Brexit is, and this is I think not controversial at this point, an Atlanticist project to. We're going to cut ourselves free of Europe and come join America in like a new grand alliance, and we're going to be back to being cool and back to being a first, like first rank power again. And then we got Joe Biden as president, (laughs) and all we're getting when we pick up the phone is him playing "Come Out You Black and Tans" down it with his phone. (laughs) Yeah, so Joe Biden can't use a phone. Come on, (laughs) he played Despacito off at that one time. Yeah, his nephew. No, so basically, the the expl- the brief explanation of what's going on is that um, Joe Biden takes the good. Fr- Joe Biden has basically said he's going to take the Good Friday Agreement quite seriously. Um, the UK's current Brexit plans depend entirely on not doing that, but also getting a favorable trade deal with the US because Britain isn't really viable as a going concern. If it doesn't have a big trade deal with either the U.S. or the EU, um, and like, I won't put it past the Tories to just decide that they want neither uh, because they want to, you know, really infuriate the urban perverts who, uh, you know, the small, the, the urban perverts that they imagine don't make up their base as opposed to the urban perverts that do. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they have essentially uh, fucked Brexit at this point. Because they completely banked on Trump being in power, and now he's not, and they are panicking. Yeah, we're gonna be we're funny. gonna be Belarus. It's gonna be awesome. Now, uh, welcome uh, Derek. to Britain. <laughs> our main export uh, is potato. Our main uh, good that we consume <laughs> is also potato. Balance of payments excellent. Coronavirus none. <laughs> now, uh, Derek, Derek, I'd like to I'd like to know sort of your your view on uh, uh, your view on these developments in any way. In fact, um, well, I mean, I, I think you're right. There was a certain level of expectation that the United States would bail Britain out, basically, with whatever was lost in a uh, no deal or at least kind of uh, Canada-like Brexit. Um, and and it looks increasingly like it's going to be a, at least initially a no deal situation, and. Um, I don't think Biden is is going to just kind of tell the UK to fend for itself. Um, I don't I don't see that happening. But I, I do think that his view will be that um, the US would rather the US US interests are better served dealing with the European Union, and it would have been better for the United States if the UK had remained in the European Union. So I, I don't see him uh, going out of his way to do a solid for Boris Johnson the way that Trump would have been inclined to do at least yeah and i think the the way to see this right is that it is is that the the grand assumption of brexit the way it was being pursued by johnson was that there was going to be a kind of international trigger the libs solidarity <laughs> which yeah, has, it was like it was like the axis of cringe there was going to be yeah. us it was going to be the us it was going to be i guess brazil yeah. india we're going to hang yeah. out in google venezuela that's yeah. right and, and and what's very funny to me 
um, is that the the British press is or the right wing press. So um, the Daily Mail, the Sun and the Express in leaders and then the Times and Telegraph and editorials are essentially trying to do Biden like they did Corbyn and just be like, ah, Joe Biden's not a British patriot as though like the, the the revealing thing is like the main position of these papers is that everybody in the world should be a British patriot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, because the, Britain's the greatest country on earth and everyone should respect like the that. right and correct position is that if you are a person, then you should recognize how specially wonderful Britain is. Yeah. Otherwise, like you're going to lose votes in the former red wall. The chances are Britain has built a railroad near you. Unless you live in Britain, in which case it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think Biden might be in trouble in terms of his uh, in terms of his vote share in like red car. Hate to see that Workington man not not voting for Biden. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, so I like they like the Daily Mail has published like one of their shock op eds where they say that a picture of Joe Biden has emerged with Jerry Adams, who was associated with Sinn Fein and all of this stuff. Like again, like. They're doing the Corbyn playbook of Joe Biden is no British patriot. Yeah, for, and but, it just will not work. No, all. like, by what mechanism do you expect that this kind of campaign against Joe Biden in the press is going to make a political difference in Britain? Although that photo of him with Jerry Adams was pretty weird because they were both naked and on a trampoline with his dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is, I, I do think there is a... a a sense that's been baked into the entire Brexit process that Britain is still a lot more important to the world than it actually is. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you have to, I think, I think it's important to bear in mind that whatever vision Boris Johnson had of a, uh, you know, right wingers uh, friends club that was going to bail him out. Um, you know, all he had, in terms of a, a promise of a, a deal, a trade deal with the United States was Donald Trump's word, which is worth <laughs> shit. Um, yeah, Donald like, Trump uh, doesn't uh, even remember CF. what he said. Again, I, 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 I reference you all of everyone who's ever worked for Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's no guarantee that, that the UK would have had anything come out of this positively either way. But, but I, you know, you keep sort of waiting for there to be a reckoning with the British right and and Britain's actual place in the world, and and I, I guess it's more be, likely, no. but I don't, I don't see it. Post imperial yeah. psychosis reigns, and we're <laughs> yeah. recording this. We're recording this on Remembrance Sunday, after all, uh, <laughs> which is that like now the peak day for that sort of thing, um, and so. We're just gonna cover ourselves in poppies, you know, and fucking like more poppies all the time, yeah. all the time, and <laughs> we're just never gonna come to terms with the fact that we are like this small island country that has now <laughs> inadvertently fucked its way out of the last vestiges of its own imperial <laughs> power <laughs> by tr by betting it all on Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> it rules. Oh, I personally wait, wait. have been spending a day going around knocking on my neighbours' doors to check that they're remembering something. Alright? <laughs> uh, you get a spot check. Have you remembered to fall in today? Because if you haven't, you better well, add you fucking slave. That, that's why they hate Joe Biden so much, is because by this point he's not capable of remembering anything. <laughs> he that's right. cannot remember the fall. It's disrespect. Um, 
yeah. So anyway, to to round out that little quick hit, yeah. Um, Br- Britain is absolutely getting its um its delusion served back up to it today. My, I want to talk my about my question. I have a one real yeah. quick question before yeah, we yeah, move yeah, on, yeah. which is: Does anyone think that there's an appetite in the EU to like? To, for the mood to turn, right? Because if they so wanted, and we know that they've done it before in Greece and in the Balkans and Spain, if the EU wants to, it could give us an absolute shooing. And my question is whether they're going to, or whether just like kind of shared racism and nostalgia is going to be enough to keep them from like absolutely fucking us over. Well, I'll, I'll throw to Derek for that one, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to know what he has to say. Um, I, I don't think it'll get that bad. I mean, Greece is, um, the UK is not Greece. <laughs> the UK isn't what it thinks it is or what Boris Johnson thinks it is. Um, uh, but Direction. it's a wealthier Everywhere country. Everywhere is Greece. Yeah, there you go. Historically, <laughs> uh, you, be, you are from Greece. We create your culture. You must respect the great nation of Greece with the plates. Uh, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a wealthier country. It has a, a larger military. It still has a, a major um role to play in terms of uh european general european wide security issues um so i i don't think there's going to be an appetite to punish the uk too much um that said i mean there's always been i think a need on the part of the the eu to make sure that no other country uh you know looks at this and says hey the uk got kind of a good deal for getting out of the eu maybe we should do that so yeah. there there has to be this has to be a, a punitive process to some extent for the eu but but just on the the basis of security issues alone i i don't think there's um especially at a time when you you've got a lot of european leaders macron even angela merkel now talking about the need to sort of divest European security from the United States and the fact that um, you really, you know, the U.S. is one election away from electing some reality TV dipshit to, to you know, screw everything up again, uh, that th- there needs to be a more independent European security posture. I, I think uh, inevitably the U.K. has to be part of that on some level. So they, they won't they won't go too far, I, I don't think. It's, it's very funny that they've, like, the need for them to do that, to, like, punish us for Brexiting, has been obviated by a large extent to which we, with the extent to which we've tripped over our own dicks doing that. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, Brexit is really bad news for the European-wide vigilante pedo hunter initiative, because that force was going to be mostly made up of British volunteers. <laughs> so um i i, I want to move on a little bit though to the other the other thing i think we have productive to say about the u.s election uh which is uh, uh proposition 22 uh so for those of you who don't know uh california has a proposition system where like they essentially are able to put changes to the law into a plebiscite where that's able to be voted on in any kind of national election so in addition to like president and representative and senator, you'll have various ballot measures. Um, Prop 22 was a ballot measure that was basically astroturfed by the app-based gig companies, your Ubers, your Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, etc., etc., that they would be able to, contrary to some legislation that had passed in California recently, uh, continue classifying all of their uh, workers as contractors rather than employees, which exempts them from 
things like minimum wage, which exempts them from things like yeah, labor law is now optional in California. Uh, if, if you if you if you have an app. Well, effectively, what it means is that labor law is, from the point of view of the employer, optional, and from the point of view of the worker, labor law, it's, it's, we've essentially created kind of classes of citizens. Once again, where, reality is a heavy-handed satire of itself, given that the, the, the rule, which is always interpret, interpreted in favor of the ruling class, which everyone hates and is very confusing, is literally called Catch-22. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, where essentially... Um, it has forestalled and forestalled permanently because it requires a seven eighths majority of the state legislature to overturn. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna awesome. like the, part of the thing about the proposition system in California is that you can just entrench these gains like this. It's the reason why it's basically impossible to raise taxes at the state level in California. Is even because on companies. Yeah, it's, because, it's, it's because a very similar proposition passed um, in, I think, it was, God, the 70s or 80s that required something like a two-thirds majority to raise any income taxes. And so it's just, it's just frozen that way now. Yeah. Um, so, cool. So, I mean, if you want, I mean, the thing is, right, and it, 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 we've, lo we've long spoken about the idea that only, oh, it is only politics that will fight the uberization of everything for workers. But it's also through politics that that can continue. Um, and, you know, the, the Yes on 22 campaign is an example of a $200 million monster organization that was basically, and we'll get into this, Saudi oil money <laughs> that cool. was channeled into a bunch of, like, Again, democratically aligned uh, lobbyists, consultants, celebrities. The apps themselves made you agree in principle uh, to Prop 22 before you got an Uber ride in California. Yeah, which was um, legal somehow. Yeah. The, and yeah. like every single app that was going to benefit from this was essentially just getting free advertising on their own platforms all the time. I thought it was weird when Uber made me agree that Wahhabism was the way forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you simply have to say the Shahada into your microphone in order to get your ride. And yeah. I think that the, the key thing here, right, is like uh, Proposition 22 has been an unalloyed win for the, for the tech industry in as much as it stands for dehumanizing and degrading people around the world. And people say they don't stand for anything. What's important to remember is that this happened in California, the most safe democratic state, where the Speaker of the House is a, 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 a long-time incumbent, where the senior member on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate is a long-time incumbent. There is no safer state than California, and they did, not only did they not come out for it, they spent no money fighting it. All of the $20 million that was spent against 22 was through organized driver groups. The Democratic Party did fucking Nothing. Yeah, Zero. Because Uber's a all. good liberal company. You know, they're Democrats. <sighs> uh, I mean, uh, uh, again, I, I, I want to throw to our, our, our guest here, just in, in terms of, uh, Derek, I want to know how you see the relationship between, like, sort of technological Whiggism and the Democrats and why they couldn't oppose this. Well, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Democrats are... Um, I mean, you, you saw it back in 2016 and I guess, you know, now they're going to feel vindicated, but the, the, uh, the whole, you know, for every working class voter we lose, we'll gain two Republicans in the suburbs, 
uh, is the animating principle of the Democratic Party, and it has been for um, a long time. I mean, it's been been that way since the Democrats sort of consciously in the '90s made the decision to become the centrist technocratic party and appeal to basically college educated whites as opposed to the the old working class uh, coalition. So uh, you know they're they're fundamentally geared to sort of. Uh, be the party of Silicon Valley. I mean, they're, they're, they're yeah. sort of, that's, that's what they're built for. That's their constituency. Now it's, it's not the new deal coalition. It's not even the great society coalition anymore. It's, it's, you know, tech bros and, and finance guys. Yeah. So if you want to talk about tech bros, uh, Uber CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi emailed drivers to celebrate uh, quote, the future of independent work being made more secure because so many drivers like you spoke up and made your voice heard and voters across the state listened. Again, because we basically sent you 10 push notifications a day and worded this thing so no one knew what the fuck they were voting for. Um, and specifically, that they, the, he, he congratulated drivers for not being taken in by, and I encourage everyone listening and everyone on this call to please um, hold on to something. Oh, boy. The big the big oh, money God. unions. <laughs> okay, Fucking cool. Hell. The f- famously, <laughs> a well-organized sector. Like this isn't even a case where it's like, say, the UAW, where you can complain about big unions, but even though you've spent like millions of dollars and decades trying to destroy them, when they actually are unions. This is like an basically ununionized uh, workforce. And yeah. Wh- we have the I- we ha- in, in the UK. We have the IWGB doing wildcat strikes only on behalf of delivery workers, and that's basically it. It's it's them, and there are games workers. I think there are other. I'm sure people who are involved in the IWG- IWGB will at us and, and tell us because the IWGB is a genuinely great union. Uh, but at least yeah. we have one. I don't think there is a union at all, big money or not, in California. Damn, all that money and nowhere to unionize. But hey, I mean, you know what? If there wasn't one, there now legally can't be one, because that's also <laughs> in Prop 22. Amazing. It's also like this fucking, like, the stupid, like, mawkish way that they phrase it all as though that, like, they're just concerned about maintaining flexibility for their drivers. Like, are they fu- They might as well say, like, here, we believe that gender is a construct, which is why we don't believe in forcing our drivers to identify as employees. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't it, tempt fate. They're gonna do that. <laughs> well, Some real beauty shit. You might as well say many of our drivers live in their cars, and we mm. believe that in order to go green, we have to reduce their commute. <laughs> um. Anyway, so look, these the, the two big takeaways from from the U.S. election for all, for our purposes are, I believe, those two. Um. Which is, uh, yeah, uh, Joe, Joe Biden, the accidental Fenian, was sort of elected by default and is kind of fucking up Brexit in a very funny way. And Prop 22 tells you how he's going to govern, which is in favor of Silicon Valley, uh, ignoring or, dis- or sort of, um, uh, you might say, shitting on unions uh, and, and so on and so on. So, you know, great. Um, mm. a, a, a wonderful four years to come uh, where... Uh, Finally, uh, Grandma's Boy will be remade, and we can all enjoy the comedy stylings of Dane Cook again. Oh, the culture is going to be so good. <laughs> going to be so cool. But here's the: we are really here to talk about one of my favorite topics to like think about and obsess about and read. 
much of TF is really just like things that I've been obsessed with for like quite a while and um, have been finally able to like have a platform to talk about. And uh, Gulf State Sovereign Wealth Funds is, if only the most recent um, uh, uh, manifestation yeah, of that. You love them because they're entourage shit, right? They're just <laughs> well, no. guys being dudes, but the extent to which they can be dudes and the weird shit they can get into is basically unlimited. A bunch of guys <laughs> um, being shakes. So, um, uh, Derek, can you just, can you, as a... Um, as as a, as a sort of a Middle East foreign foreign affairs uh, specialist, can you kind of introduce the concept of a Gulf sovereign wealth fund for us? Uh, sure. I mean, there are sovereign wealth funds all over the world, and they they basically are uh, countries' way of kind of getting getting into the market, playing <laughs> playing the market, diversifying their economy. Um, investing in you know companies that look like they're going to do well, and and obviously there's a political component to that. Uh, since these are national things, you you, you pick and choose. Uh, in some cases, investments that uh, you know will further some political aims. Um, what makes them uh, particularly relevant in the Gulf is that there's disproportionately a very large. Uh, number of the the highest kind of uh, or largest by asset uh, sovereign wealth funds in the world uh, are Gulf sovereign wealth funds. Um, you know the largest, like Norway has a very large one. I think is over. Uh, it's close to one point two trillion dollars. Uh, China has a couple very large ones, sort of, you know, you would you would expect that, I think. Um, but, you know, you, you get into like the top 10 or top 15 of these things and you, you're looking at the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, the Kuwait Investment Authority, uh, the Saudi Private Investment Fund. Um, there's uh, a couple, there's a, a Dubai Investment Corporation, um, the Qatar Investment Authority. And, you know, it's just like, there's a, a high percentage of, of Gulf states, sovereign wealth funds on, on this list. Um, and the reason for that is uh, Gulf states, Gulf leaders have sort of, um, you know, they're, they're not, we have this sort of image, I think, of, of, you know, Gulf states just kind of sitting there spending money until the oil runs out and then they're going to be, you know, left holding the bag. But that's not the case. They, they have uh, embraced... Uh, the sovereign wealth fund and the investment vehicle as as a way to try and use what fossil fuel money they can still you know extract over the the remaining life of their resources and over the you know as humanity at least talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels whether we do or not uh, you know to sort of make their economies a little less uh, one note and a little more resilient to those kinds of changes. So they're, um, they're, they're particularly relevant, I think, to the, the Gulf where you have a, a genuine need to sort of diversify economically and get away from this one thing that's made that region extraordinarily rich, but is maybe not going to be a, a, a great uh, you know, thing to rely on in the future. Because what we would hate to see is for fossil fuels to stop being a thing overnight and a bunch of Emiratis to have to sell all their Dior belts on Depop. That would be a real shame. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think the, the thing to add to this as well, just a, a little bit of vegetables before we get into the dessert of what they're actually investing uh -huh. in, 
is that um, sovereign wealth funds are also a great way for resource rich con- countries to avoid something. And Milo's going to do a voice as soon as I say this uh, to avoid <laughs> hit me, <laughs> to, hit me. To, to avoid something called Dutch disease. <laughs> <laughs> Join me in the Dutch dojo. <laughs> uh, so uh, Dutch disease is essentially when you're a, a resource. You exporting- everything in tulips. Yeah, exactly. Nobody, nobody exactly needs polish is. and clogs anymore. I'm just, I'm just gonna wait. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dutch disease is this. It, it's it's a sort of cl- concept in economics where uh, the rapid appreciation of a resource exporting country's currency um, as those resource rents flow in, because basically, like if I'm selling oil and everyone's buying my currency to buy the oil that's denominated in my currency, suddenly the like price of my currency goes way up, and then all of a sudden. Uh, you know, uh, your workers can't buy bread because you know get, buying guilders is far too oh, expensive. I, I, I believe there's a solution to this in the Gulf already, known as uh, slavery. <laughs> uh, well, so what a sovereign wealth fund does in in this case is it takes a lot of those resource rents and and it converts them back into other currencies. So it kind of it 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 is in effect a rebalancer because what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, yeah, uh, number one. Uh, even in the case that like oil is bought in U.S. dollars, which it is, um, a sovereign wealth fund is able to say, well, we're able to then uh, we are able to not just invest in U.S. dollar assets such as you American denominated companies or treasury bills or what have you. Uh, but we are able to invest in a multi- in a basket of currencies, which sort of protects us against our currency being driven crazy. Uh, by us exporting this resource denominated in R or other currencies. So like it's it's there is as as Derek as you were saying there is this long-term strategic diversification aim. There's also a short-term tactical like more monetary aim as well. And that's why you see sovereign wealth funds mostly cropping up in resource exporting company countries generally. Um and so it's a, a little bit of a note on on history so we can understand how these things came about. Um, is that the, the first one was in the Gulf was started in 1951. It's called the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority or SAMA, uh, and the Kuwait Investment Authority started shortly afterward. Um, but the real K-O-A. story of the that's the acronym. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, cool. The real story though of the Gulf Sovereign Wealth Fund as we know it, kind of because the, what they were doing right is they were taking that money and they were either just buying uh, current buying assets denominated in other currencies or they were taking that money and reinvesting it directly in stuff at home. Uh, so mm-hmm. like trying to develop like I, 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 trying to develop in those strategic lines, like other um, complementary industries. So like that's when like Sabic, what the chemical company was started, same thing. Um, but the real story of the Gulf Sovereign Wealth Fund, as we know, it begins in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War, uh, where OPEC, the oil producing Middle Eastern countries, uh, imposed heavy sanctions on the U.S. for its support of Israel which in turn caused enormous amounts of money to flow to countries like Saudi Arabia because even though because they basically they raised the prices of oil but you couldn't stop buying oil. And so yeah, that'd be crazy. Extre- an extremely rare handshake meme between like leftist praxis and OPEC. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so effectively what happened was after like neoliberalism as we understand it kind of was created to respond to this particular crisis. Um, and so where, where what you have is you have tons of U.S. dollars flowing into Saudi Arabia but, and, and similar Gulf states, but then, you need, then they need to spend those U.S. dollars. Um, 
And so the U.S. brokered an agreement for the Saudis to bill for oil in dollars, reinvest that money in U.S. Treasury bills, effectively starting what is called this, what, this financial flow, this very particular historical type of financial flow called petrodollar recycling, uh, where money that is spent by the U.S. on oil through SAMA, the monetary authority, is then respent loaning, uh, either loaning the U.S. government money, where it's then able to spend that money on social programs and, 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 and the military and things of that nature, or that money is then deposited in banks in London, where it's then loaned out to either developing com- uh, countries or, or companies and so on and so on. So at some point, uh, the Saudis own 20% of all foreign-owned U.S. debt. That's now much lower because of China. But nevertheless, like this is a quite significant kind of financial flow because it creates these surpluses of money where it's not really useful for, say, human flourishing, but it does have to get spent immediately either on, as we say, Dior belts or um, making sort of large, high-interest loans to developing I, countries. I love to like and, inadvertently and get, yeah. create a Brewster's Millions type of scenario, <laughs> where I'm just building like massive highways between like two cities that don't need them. Um, and so I, love to, I love to use, build the yeah. King Khaled Economic and Cyber Warfare Center for posting excellence, and it spends twenty <laughs> trillion dollars on it. Yeah, because all because tons of American money, whether that's money from companies or that's mu- mu- much of it money spent by the government from taxes on energy, is then just going to these yeah. shakes who like, are like, oh. no, that's that's the point we're getting at here is that like. Uh, I suppose the general point too, as with sovereign wealth funds or with petrodollars, is that we're not calling the leaders of these Gulf states stupid. I mean, some of them are, but they're not like acting in a stupid way. It's just that what we've done is inadvertently incentivized spending money in the dumbest possible ways, as fast as possible, as much as possible, until you just end up with the, oh, well, we've got all of this money. We have to throw it at something. We may as well try and like diversify away from oil by building the posting center. Uh, so Derek, I'm interested to sort of Understand sort of your your view on petrodollar recycling in this way. Uh, um, I, I mean, I you know, I uh, <laughs> uh, I sort of my background is is in the Gulf. I I um, spent some time living in Qatar and sort of observing the way that these uh, countries are trying to prepare for the future, I guess. Um, and it's, it's, um, I, I wouldn't go, I think you're, you're right to sort of not go too far in the direction of, uh, kind of attributing, I don't know, the, the, they're kind of focusing on the political end of this. I mean, there, there definitely is a genuine interest in kind of, building a more durable economy, whether that's, um, you know, but just by kind of moving away from, from oil and fossil fuels. So, um, you know, I, I think to some extent, these things are, um, I guess maybe well-intentioned is the wrong way to put it, but um, you know, the, the Gulf, the leadership in the Gulf States understands that there is, um, a bargain in effect that they've made uh, with the people that that 
they, you know, with the people living in the Gulf, which is, uh, you know, we will take care of you. We will, you know, we'll, we'll maintain a very uh, large kind of welfare networks and, and, you know, uh, enable people to, uh, to sort of, live comfortably in return for uh, you, you all looking the other way about the absolute monarchy thing. And the fact that, you know, there's not really a lot of space for political activity. Yeah, um, you get an apartment and, 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 and that, I get a gold a, boat. That's a bill that's coming due. And, and you already see a lot of, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the the uh, weakening of the the welfare state and rising unemployment and uh, there's a lot of tension underlying that and so the the monarchies in the Gulf I think uh, for no other reason than self preservation recognize that that you know they've got to kind of transition to some other model and and part of that involves sort of uh, you know change moving their the economy away from this uh, very simple one note kind of resource extraction I hate uh, economy. I, I hate when I'm simply trying to enjoy a feast with my bros and this weird writing appears on the wall what's up with that <laughs> not a fan of this writing. <laughs> So the thing is, right? right. And, and Fortunately, and I that's can't an addition. That's an additional challenge, right? Because because oil purchases are denominated in dollars, then all of that, any social spending in the Gulf also has to again be channeled through euro dollar markets in places like London, where they can where they can where they can sell those dollars and then sort of, and then basically transfer them into their own currency. It's extraordinarily convoluted. Um, because they have to get rid of those dollars, um, and and so effectively, right? There are several places that those get disposed of. They get disposed of in terms of domestic spending, Derek, as you were saying. They used to get disposed of in high interest-bearing loans to developing countries, but then the in- when basically after as the oil crisis was happening, those petrodollar loans to less developed countries got jacked up, which is one of the reasons that like. I, I, I honestly think if you want if you want to look at one financial flow to understand where we are today, you can't really do worse than petrodollars. Um, in as much as that explains an enormous amount of why suddenly throughout the sort of nineteen seventies, eighties, and nineties, less developed countries weren't able to pay interest on their loans because most of them were this kind of loan, uh, where all where it was a petrodollar loan and those that interest was coming due and was being jacked up. Uh, and they were also unable to then buy that energy because what you're doing with the petrodollar flow is you're buying energy and then borrowing the money that you've spent on energy back from the person who sold you energy. But that person that sold you energy, they're unable to maintain the domestic balance of power unless they know that they can keep selling you energy. Do you ever get so the it's, feeling it's, you're watching a game of three card Monty being played <laughs> by an idiot? Uh, well, I, I always feel like it's a game of three card Monty being played by two people who both think they're the dealer. <laughs> um, and so I think, honestly, like, what do we do about the petrodollars has been this structural question answered by every major country in the last in the world for the last 50 years. It was why we had the big bang of deregulation, because there was this money that was sloshing into Britain that needed to be allocated that couldn't be with with. As as things currently stand, that's why Thatcher needed to deregulate the city. It was at the heart of. It was one of the main like 
sort of forces sort of undergirding and 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 behind the um dissolving of Bretton Woods at the structural level it was the birth of neoliberalism it was this idea that everything has to be about the management of risk because suddenly everything is about debt because everything is about this balance of owing money to gulf states and at the specific level it's also why you can't buy property in central london it's why uber was able to pass proposition 22 just spend 200 million dollars on the it stone because the saudi money is behind quite them. literally and who keeps down the electric car <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 the Saudis via Petra. It's because it, this has been since the 1970s. What has defined the West? It is what do we do with petrodollars? How do we keep coming up with them? And how do we get them to spend them so that they come back to us? Britain, that is everything. Britain absolutely loves spreading its bussy for some foreign cash. And we do not care where it comes from. I mean, we love a it's petrodollar. Us. It comes from us. <laughs> but we Milo, also- it comes from us just via them. Yeah, but we also love a bit of uh, stolen Russian oligarch money. We're a fan of that. And you know what? If it has to make a housing crisis in London and also a few people have to get like maybe poisoned or padlock themselves into suitcases and jump off the roof of their house in an unfortunate suicide attempt, well, so be it. <laughs> so, but the thing is, right, most of the petrodollar recycling we're discussing here was... It's recycling, so it's oh, good for the environment. Well, <laughs> well, but that was around like bank deposits and lending, so there were these sort of intermediaries. What's happened since 20, sort of to the financial crisis since 2008, and especially accelerating since the coronavirus crisis uh, this year, is that the petrodollar recycling has become much more direct as many of these Gulfy sovereign wealth funds begin to invest directly. Um, this is either investing in companies or investing in asset managers such as Blackstone or sponsoring the SoftBank Vision Fund as uh, the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund and to a lesser extent, I believe, uh, the Abu Dhabi Mubadala Fund as well did. There are several Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, just the cool uh, guy stuff that we all know and love that we've been exploring on this show. Uh, and, all th- and, and also, so we're going to be talking about three. Uh, Mubadala, the Qatar Investment Authority... And then the Saudi um, Public Investment Fund, like Sama um, and ADIA are, and, and KIA are like much less funny. They're just a little bit more competently invested, just normal. Yeah. They're more like a normal just asset regu- manager. Just a regular kind of evil as opposed to our preferred Baroque kind of evil. Yeah, kooky um, but, evil. Uh, so Vision Fund 2, by the way, is mainly uh, Kazakhstan. Um, <laughs> this the awesome. fucking tie-ins for this Borat shit have gone yeah. far. Sick of it. Would you, uh, I and, would like to invest in your business. And, so, um, uh, Derek, just my my understanding is the uh, the way to understand these three funds is that the Qatar Investment Thor- Authority is a landlord with a twist. Mubadala is an arm of UAE foreign policy, and the PIF is um. MBS trying to be an entourage character. Do you think does that does that sound right to you? <laughs> um, I, I certainly the PIF is definitely uh, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, kind of plaything. It's it's his vehicle for realizing his Vision Twenty Thirty plan, um, which is partly about kind of shifting Saudi the Saudi economy but partly about uh, cementing his own legacy and his own power as as the 
uh, heir to the throne. Um, the the Mubadala, uh, I'm I'm less familiar with Mubadala. My sense is that it's kind of the you know we, we've we've talked about the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. That's sort of the the um, kind of let's play it safe and and keep things in sort of relatively. Uh, t- normal investments. Mubadala seems to be uh, the uh, the vehicle for kind of taking a little more risk, kind of doing a little bit more um, off the wall stuff, and that that leads you into the things like buying, you know, uh, or investing in self driving cars, and and you know, getting into Uber, and and uh, uh, you know, some of these uh, kind of getting getting into. Uh, the Malaysian, uh, you know, one MDB thing, which there's a, there's a whole relationship there. That's a little Oopsie bit doodle. weird, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> not, not well covered, but a little bit strange. Um, and you know, the, the Qatar investment authority, um, that's a, that's a very political thing, uh, you know, in addition to being sort of, you know, the, the kind of, uh, a vehicle for the cutteries to kind of use their gas money and mostly you know, most of their their wealth is in natural gas now uh to build out their economy there's also a a, a big foreign policy um arm of that uh company there was a story i think in Vanity Fair uh, some time back earlier this year, I think, about the Qatar Investment Authority having uh, leased office space in a building partly owned by Donald Trump and just like parking an office there. There's nobody working there and there's nothing going on in it. It just exists as a way for them to kind of pay Donald Trump some money of some rent <laughs> money. Um, and and that was rooted in uh you know the 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 2017 collapse of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the Qataris looking for ways to kind of build back their influence in Washington when it at a time when it looked like the Trump administration was going to side very heavily with the Saudis in that dispute and and the Qataris were um trying to you know kind of uh forestall that the, the, they've and also they know, also invested in Donald Trump always works which is the key <laughs> thing i mean they also so- invested in the kushner property in in manhattan i mean oh, that was a lot there was yeah. a lot of that uh going on at that they time and i think it's continued yeah so i mean the, the way to understand the, the the qatari investment authority as far as i can tell is that it's essentially the altani's becoming like the world's buy to let landlord um where <laughs> They've bought a great deal of central London, most of Mayfair, including the old U.S. embassy, many like prestigious hotels, things of that nature. They're now aggressively buying real estate in New York and D.C. Um, Damn, who do they think they are? The University of Cambridge? (laughs) (laughs) But what I think is very funny, though, is that um, because basically like all of these funds invest like I think like like like, the, the PIF invests in the stuff that a character from Entourage would invest in. Uh, Mubadala, I think, as as much as I like to own sort of institutional investors on this show, uh, it's like, as much as it takes risks, like, it seems to take like quite calculated risks, like it seems relatively sensible if very cynical, uh, whereas the QIA seems largely to just want to be a landlord. Um, it just bu- it mostly just buys property or leases property. 
uh, prestigious property. And what I thought was very funny is that in October 2014, uh, the Sunday Telegraph, owned by the billionaire Barclay Brothers, uh, launched a, a multi-month campaign called Stop the Funding of Terrorism to stress about, about like Qatar's persistent negligence Encountering terrorist financing to activities. Well, it's it's not the negligence East. if you try to do it. Well, yeah. No, sorry. That was what they said. <laughs> yeah. right? For legal reasons, but, we must say negligence. Yeah. But yeah. but what's funny is that this coincided with the QIA trying to buy three Mayfair hotels that the Barclay brothers, the owners of the newspaper, also wanted to purchase. Just slap fights awesome. between landlords. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like. I do like the idea of a terrorist landlord. Just like yeah. you try to get your safety deposit back, and he like comes around, points out a bunch of marks on the carpet, and then blows up the fucking apartment. Yeah, he's very angry that you've taken down the black flag that was hung up in the living room. You're gonna have to replace yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> the boiler goes out, so he gets his cousin to come over and blow it up. <laughs> so this is a situation, right, where like everyone, uh, uh, for uh, uh, limiting myself to what has been in print, everyone is right about everyone else, and everyone is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, imagine as like you know, like a big British Tory getting angry about the Qataris trying to be like landlords. I mean, that's the most British thing you can do. Yeah, it's They're assimilation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they keep moving the goalposts. They want them to integrate. They don't want them to integrate. What is it? <laughs> um, but I think the, the main thing for me that's funny about the QIA is, yeah, just the, um, let's say, the persistent uh, and not entirely unfounded rumors about uh, funding. Yeah, uh, certain certain activities involving the purchase of large numbers of Toyota Hiluxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, and how that has conflicted uh, with, uh, say, attempts to purchase prestigious real estate in London from other people who are as big of pieces of shit. The um, world's largest Toyota pickup truck collector, the Qatari <laughs> government. <laughs> uh, but so I don't, I don't wanna, They're all I don't, of these are for personal, recreational use. <laughs> they're going to increase in value. They're a special edition. <laughs> yeah. Look, I have a landscaping company in Philadelphia. They're all necessary. <laughs> oh, beautiful um, reference. Beautiful. So, uh, I, I move. I want to move on a little bit though to uh, Mubadala. Um, and I think like you can't talk about about Mubadala without talking about, as you said, Derek, like the transformation in the sort of constitutions of these countries. Because just this week, the UAE essentially secularized their legal code as well. Hmm. Yes, they they've. Uh... They've taken a number of steps and, um, uh, you know, they sort of loosened laws about drinking alcohol. Um, they've, uh, yeah, I think, I think secularized is, is probably the, the right umbrella term. Um, but it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's similar to what some of the things that have happened in Saudi Arabia, not quite, uh, as oriented around kind of the, the religious aspects of, of, things that are prohibited under Islam. But, uh, you know, you see in Saudi Arabia the, this effort to kind of relax restrictions on entertainment and, uh, you know, have concerts and movie theaters. And the WWE, sort of, uh, which was such a surreal know, fucking yes. <laughs> Well, wrestling, I mean, wrestling, pro wrestling has always been huge uh, in the Gulf. So that's, I mean, yes, the, kind of inviting the WWE in is, a, is another, is a step 
you know, in a, in a certain direction, but it's, it's one that's very in keeping with, uh, kind of the, the entertainment interests of the golf. It's always been a, a major, uh, major attraction. So, it's a revealing of what their priorities are, isn't it? That it's like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. we, we have now legalized, we've legalized drinking, you know, no, no Sharia, but if you are a dissident, if you say shit about the, uh, uh, the Tanis or the Saudis or whoever else, we will get a wrestler to choke slam you through a folding table. That's absolutely right. <laughs> So a guy um, has to wrestle a Toyota Hilux. A very <laughs> exciting match. Because ultimately, like a lot of these, a lot of these funds are dedicated to um, not just not just like modernization of not just diversification of the economy, but also like playing playing catch up with with industrialization beyond just like oil extraction or natural gas extraction. And so a lot of them then in heavily invest in domestic enterprises. So like Mubadala heavily invests in like like a, a UAE data center and AI capacity. But one of the interesting things is that what's unique about the UAE fund structure is that instead of having one or two funds, like the Saudis have a serious fund and a fun fund. Um, <laughs> Business in the front, policy in the back. Gotcha. Uh, the Qataris basically just a landlord. The Kuwaitis have like one serious fund and so on. Um, the UAE had like dozens of different funds all of whom have several different portfolio managers, all of whom basically compete with one another. And so it's quite cutthroat where you have a crown prince up top, many portfolio managers underneath, all of which with competing strategies. And I believe that the chief executive of Mubadala or like one of the, the person really pulling the strings is actually a civilian unrelated to the royals who was just able to rise to the authority level of a minor royal by sheer competence at investing, basically. And, and, and also, uh, between UAE and Saudi, there are heavy tie-ins with the defense industry and the attempts to like create BAE well, like, systems do you remember that, that are, Do you remember that American uh, um, Army Aviation Colonel who the UAE hired in to be a general? And they just like, they gave him the promotion that he always wanted, that he wasn't <laughs> able to get in the US. Uh, yeah, but that, but that, I mean, that's how it works in the private sector. If your company won't promote you, then another company that has a need of your skill set will hire yeah, you. So the, th- this guy, level. this guy was just doing like uh, was like organizing airstrikes in Yemen. I, I think he was still technically a U.S. Army officer, but he was like <laughs> picking up the phone and answering it like a rank higher in Arabic, and just be like, "Yeah, no, that, <laughs> I, 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 I'm I'm subcontracted to these guys. It rules. That's the gig economy, baby. Yes." You have um, to have multiple jobs. Like that guy's lost out in Prop Twenty Two. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to you have to approve a little message before you fire the Hellfire missile. Yeah, <laughs> he, doesn't get, he doesn't get healthcare in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so uh, there are a, a few more things about about uh, Mubadala, but um, I, I'm, they also are like their involvement in the One MDB scandal uh in Malaysia like there what they owned a Swiss bank that was essentially i think rolled up uh because of its involvement in that bribery scandal yeah, and you know things and are I bad th- when you're too corrupt to be a Swiss bank <laughs> oh boy i think the, as far as i understand it and again Derek i welcome you to correct me here is that Mubadala in many ways functions as an arm of UAE foreign affairs and i'm not just looking at like influence peddling here as well i'm also looking at like investments in uh companies like group 42 uh, which is a Chinese AI firm, which is essentially a way for them, which is a PLA cutout, which is a way for them to funnel money to China. 
Um, yeah, I mean, my my understanding of, of Mubadala is is limited, and it's it's opaque. I mean, all of these all of these funds, uh, you know, really try as hard as possible not to uh, broadcast their business. I guess for understandable reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned the one MDB scandal. The, the, it, it, Mubadala kind of absorbed uh, the uh, Abu Dhabi's International Petroleum Investment Company, whose managing director wound up being arrested over his role in, in the one MDB scandal. Um, so that was, it, it kind of, you know, absorbed IPIC and its portfolio in the midst of that, uh, you know, in the midst of, of that kind of fallout from, from that scandal. Um, I, I, I think it's fair to say that, um, there, there's a political component to all of these funds in in a sense I mean you know they're they're there to fulfill a wide range of national aims it's not just about kind of diversifying the the economies of the Gulf states but Mubadala does seem to be um, you know the place where uh, the the Emiratis or at least Abu Dhabi anyway um, it kind of, puts the things that uh, you know are are on the one hand kind of riskier investments to some degree although you know certainly i, I agree they they haven't uh, taken anything that looks like a stupid risk um and also the things that the investments that maybe have other uh goals other aims to kind of strengthen uh aspects of abu dhabi or aspects of the emirati uh foreign relations interests. Um, so yeah, I think it's, you know, a ADIA and, and the investment company in, in Dubai, uh, are sort of more traditional kind of stayed placid sovereign wealth funds. Mubadal is the place where, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and, and, uh, you know, the people under him can kind of play around with, with things that, that aren't necessarily just, uh, you know, the traditional kind of aim. Of a, of a yes moonshot investments. And, we're funding and, a Chinese company that plans to literally shoot the moon. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. hang on though. Didn't they? Didn't they hire some company to actually build a big fake moon in a Saudi well, city? No, that's no, Saudi, that's, we'll that's Saudi that. Arabia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so one one last thing about Group Forty Two and Mubadala, right? Is that um, if the Group Forty Two investment happened about two weeks ago, uh, maybe less than that, and. Um, Again, they are just they are essentially a a they are a, a Chinese company that is focused on military application, military and healthcare, but mainly military applications of AI. It's funny how that wars so, works out, huh? So if there was to be a way to send money to ch to the Chinese uh, PLA direct more directly, I haven't yet yeah, so seen. We're it. not we're not calling these <laughs> funds uh, tools for like grotesquely obvious bribery. We're not saying that. But if we were saying that, then I think it would be very easy for us to say that on account of how they are. That. <laughs> Weirdly, <laughs> this is more or less a direct message Allegedly. to one Australian listener <laughs> and to think that we are, Andrew we are strangely Morning? too up on this kind of thing. Um, anyway, I want to move on, though, uh, to, to Saudi. The the. Mm. the the dessert course of this particular discussion. <laughs> the greatest country one. on earth. Yeah. So the one that everyone uh, should be a patriot of. So Saudi, I, as I mentioned, has two big sovereign wealth funds. Uh, Sama uh, is the monetary authority. That's the one for counteracting Dutch disease. That's the one that's most like normal. <laughs> that's the one that's not yeah. stupid. They um, care about we're their not own trees. About that one. 
we're not going to talk about that one. Um, we're going to talk mostly about PIF. So um, essentially, uh, Derek, as you mentioned, PIF is one of the main vehicles for the fulfillment of Vision 2030. Vision 2030 is Mohammed bin Salman's idea for what Saudi Arabia has to be like in 2030. So it yeah, can continue no Sharia, kicking and no screaming into the 17th century. <laughs> no Sharia, no dissidents, and everybody who opposes you is hit over the back of the head with a folding chair. Yeah, <laughs> but but also you really impress every woman you meet. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Everybody has a job working at the posting center where you go online and threaten to 9/11 other countries. But, but also everyone ha- everyone also has a job like. As either you're like Eric or a Johnny drama, <laughs> like I'm really, I'm really, I'm really harping on this like MBS has entourage brain thing for reasons that we will explore when we see what he's. Oh, I mean, in. like the yeah. peak, the peak MBS entourage moment was the the Saad Hariri photo where he like went out drinking and took like photos for the gram with the Prime Minister of Lebanon, whom he kidnapped. And the guy is like sitting next to him, wearing his best. Hey, I just got kidnapped by this guy. Smile, and MBS is just like having a great time. He's like, "Hey, what's up with this guy?" Awesome. I have to say, I mean, just just from like, I mean, I don't know that much about Saudi Arabia, but I do think it's an extremely Chad move that the like the House of Saud renamed the whole country after them. Like, <laughs> imagine if Britain was called like Mountbatten Windsor Land. Like, wouldn't yeah. <laughs> It should, that is, it should be called, and, and you know what? That is a hey, Chad royal family move. And once Scotland and and, and Northern Ireland, uh, you know, go their separate ways, we can be called that. Hmm. Hmm. Custodian of the two holy mosques, Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. By the way, I was reviewing the uh, documentation for the PIF, um, and there are like like sort of like glamour portraits of uh, of of Mohammed bin Salman. And, Wait, he's got his uh, tits out? <laughs> no nipple, though. He's got the, like, news and briefs thing from the sun. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bin Salman, <laughs> aged 43, from Riyadh, thinks we should invade yeah. Iraq, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's uh, there are basically these, like, glamour shots of MVS and King Salman, where, like, King Salman has been retouched to the point that he looks like a mannequin. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's what yes. they're gonna do with him after he dies. Surely, there's yeah, gonna you know, be a big Lenin-style mausoleum. He is absolutely going to give other golf monarchs unrealistic body image expectations. <laughs> of the air pressure. My, my, my yeah, favorite, my favorite salmon story, by the way, and I it says something that I have a favorite salmon story was literally. By the way, Derek, I'll be asking you for your literally after this. last year because <laughs> when he was still like when they were still trying to pretend that he was still kicking, right? He um. He had a, a diplomatic visit from a delegation from Libya, and he was like, "Hey, how's it going, guys? How's Gaddafi doing?" Just perfectly <laughs> innocently. It's like I'm not sure how you broached that, but that's an awkward conversation. Yeah, he actually uh, Derek, got out of a hole recently. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Derek, your favorite King Salman story before we go on, if you have uh, one. Uh, <laughs> I, I think my favorite one is the uh, the the story of the uh, Salvador Mundi uh, painting, the the supposed uh, Da Vinci masterpiece that was purchased. Uh, I can't remember. It was a couple of years ago. Um, 
by an unknown <laughs> Saudi investor <laughs> for, you know, an extraordinary amount of money. Um, like, I want to say like $500 million. This was in, I think, 2017. Um, and and they finally attributed the purchase to this like random Saudi prince nobody had really ever heard of, uh, who was obviously a cutout for Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and and supposedly the story at the time was that Mohammed bin Salman had bought this as a favor to uh, his friend in in uh, Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, uh, because Abu Dhabi was building and has since built a a modern, well, no, it's not modern art, but a, a very kind of modern museum uh, of fine art. Uh, they leased the name Louvre uh, from from the Louvre in Paris. Uh, so it's the, the Louvre Abu, Abu Dhabi. It's not connected with the the actual Louvre, but uh, you know, it's it's le- they've they've you know it's leased the name right. Yes, and this was supposed yes, to be, literally yes. This was supposed to be uh, so supposed to be the centerpiece uh, of this new museum's collection. Um, but then there was a lot of speculation. There were a little, like some speculations that maybe it wasn't really a Da Vinci. Maybe it had been done by one of his students. Maybe it was, oh, it a, was a forgery. And the painting just kind of disappeared. <laughs> um, and and it's never been given to the to Abu Dhabi for the museum. Uh, supposedly now it's on one of MBS's yachts. Cool. Uh, and it's a just very kind safe of place parked, to keep a priceless work of art <laughs> parked on this yacht, and and it may eventually wind up uh, in a an art museum that the Saudis are trying to build in uh, in Al Ula, which is a, a city in the northwestern part of the country. Uh, yeah. But just this sort of the display of uh, unbelievably useless, extravagant wealth coupled with having no real idea what he wants to do with this. And th- what made it even better really is that this happened, this, you know, $500 million, 450, whatever it was, million dollar purchase of this painting happened right around the time uh, the Saudis started throwing all their wealthiest citizens in the, the Riyadh uh, Ritz Carlton and shaking them down <laughs> for millions of dollars, uh, supposedly uh, because they were all corrupt. And and here you have no. you know, the Crown Prince kind of uh, <laughs> just directly kind of funneling money out of the country to buy a painting, <laughs> and, and you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. This is this is literally what happened when Julius Caesar started prescribing wealthy senators. <laughs> <laughs> This is is just like a bunch of Praetorians rolling up to like Cicero's house and then just deciding to spend his money on another triumph. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that rules. Uh, All right, so basically, Julius Caesar um, building a second moon. Yeah, (laughs) Julius Caesar. I mean, I mean, uh, to what extent could you call um, certain cities like on the Anatolian coast Neom? I guess we'll never know. Mm. Um. I, I said Socrates going down to Neom to have a little discussion with his friend. <laughs> yeah. uh, I met Glaucon the other day in the artificial beach. Mm. Um, so basically, uh, the connection between uh, P- the PIF, this investment fund, and Vision 2030 is basically, this is the vehicle for its delivery, but it was not ever thus. So um, PIF was set up in 1971, much as the other sovereign wealth funds in the Gulf were originally before they took on these like other purposes was set to rechannel resource wealth into a local currency crucially um and b to spend that local currency on developing non 
um, extractive uh, resource rent business models, essentially. So it was the basically permanent private investor in like uh, Sabic Petrochemicals and Saudi Telecom, but it was largely dormant until 2015 when an enterprising Saudi defense secretary, Mohammed bin Salman, then took it over as the vision to drive this 2030 economic reform plan. And as soon as he took it over, um, he then stacked it with his friends. Um, awesome. And so, dude, dude, um, love to dude hang rock. Out. Yeah, so basically, let's say, I, I've, I've reviewed sort of certain analyst commentary about the fund, and a lot of it's very diplomatic. Mm. Uh, my favorite one was um, uh, from, uh, from one analyst who said, a lot of the experience the people have at the top is very narrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but they, they... This guy's very thing... experienced. He's bought over 400 bottles of champagne in clubs to <laughs> Yeah, one thing they're not experienced at, being a fake friend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The decision-making is all in the hands of Saudi royalty, and expats are largely brought in to present due diligence, but as a semblance of a rubber stamp. Look, it's better to have so, a vision fund full of people who love you than a whole party full of sharks <laughs> hungry as well. I genuinely want sure. that job as the like kind of expat fixer who sits in an office and is like, yeah, no, that seems fine, to be honest, and I get paid $20 million a year to do this. Wait, I've got the name for this. Imam's Basement. <laughs> uh, well, that's the episode title. Thank you. Um, so, uh, one, uh, uh, John... Um, Svakananakis, a <laughs> golf expert at. Excuse <laughs> me. Come on, just just move past it. He's got a Greek name. A golf <laughs> a golf expert at Cambridge said there was a disconnect between the dire domestic fiscal situation and the fund's continuous profligate outward investments, and that mm. complicates the economic recovery. Thanks a lot for a Greek to, to say that. Finite sources <laughs> of funding. So, um, before we go into the specific sources of funding, can we sort of speak a little bit about like what position Saudi Arabia is in? Versus, like, again, the fact that much of what they're spending their oil wealth on is, quite frankly, fucking insane. <laughs> well, I, the the key to this uh, from a from a policy standpoint is this uh, Vision 2030 plan. Um, and Vision 2030 is there's a number of these kind of initiatives uh, in the Gulf. I think Qatar had the first one. Uh, which they they started actually back in 2008. At, I looked at Cutter's Vision 2030. It was pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very normal, and it's it's um, they actually preceded a lot of this because where the Saudi Vision 2030 comes from, and I think Kuwait has a Vision 2035, and Abu Dhabi has its own Vision 2030 plan. I think Abu Dhabi has Vision 2021. Like they're quite uh, they short did, but I, I think my, my favorite I think my favorite decent <laughs> all of this about to reality like, there. They've never Named all of this with an English pun for Vision 2020, and nobody has told them that the higher <laughs> no. number means that the vision is worse. Well, no, uh, Alice, it's because they all hired McKinsey. Yeah, and what McKinsey, and what McKinsey, McKinsey told them nice. was, hey, it's like 2020, but it's better. But 2020, <laughs> like a tw 2030, is it's worse more. than it's 2020 more. vision. Yeah, but uh, but 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 before I throw it back to Derek, no, McKinsey copy pasted most of this. Like I, I, there are there are things that I know about McKinsey in the Gulf that I cannot repeat on this forum <laughs> in terms of in terms of things they have sold to dupes. But sorry, uh, Derek, please carry on. So uh, cutters cutters predates a lot of this, but the the motive for the Saudi 
Vision 2030 at least, and I think the others as well, uh, is the UN's Sustainable Development Agenda, which they rolled out in 2015, which was called the 2030 Agenda. Um, so I think that that's part of where this uh, fixation on the year 2030 comes from. Also, it's like far enough in the distance to be, uh, you know, you're not promising anything really. You're just kind of putting a, a year out there by the time, you know, we're going to have it all done by this point. Um, but the, this, the vision, vision 2030 is sort of, Mohammed bin Salman's attempt to rewrite um, something I talked about a little earlier, the the sort of social contract of, of Saudi Arabia, which as it stands now is, you know, we've got all this oil wealth, we're going to, you know, e- extract it, we're going to sell it, uh, we're going to use that money in part to sort of build a, a, a very comprehensive network of social programs so that everybody gets taken care of at some minimal uh, basic level uh, Hmm. that keeps people comfortable. I get a Da Vinci, you get a job at the beheading factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, in, in return for that, you all can look the other way as we kind of extract the rest of that wealth for ourselves. And as we rule the country uh, relatively, you know, uh, in a relatively authoritarian way, you'll, you'll kind of, uh, you know, not worry so much about that. So part of the, the concern here is, of course, that oil is not you know, maybe not going to be the the uh, the vehicle that it has been for maintaining this kind of state. Uh, part of the the concern is that you know the Saudis were very worried in 2011 when the Arab Spring t- happened. They were very worried there were going to be uh, there was going to be a protest movement in Saudi Arabia, and they very much want to prevent that from happening. And so the idea is, as Saudi Arabia kind of necessarily transitions out of this. A world where you know very pricey oil financed a lot of stuff uh, that you know they could then you know uh, provide to people in exchange for their compliance. Um, we're sort of changing. They're sort of changing the social contract in a way. They're they're um, trying to keep the economy strong, trying to create jobs. Uh, there's a there's a initiatives in all the Gulf states really. There's a, 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 they all have uh, they're also named something like Saudization or Qatarization or Emiratization, which is are these movements to kind of uh, put you know jobs that have heretofore been uh, filled by expats and and some of them brought under very dubious uh, considering, you know, <laughs> circumstances from South Asia and, and other regions and treated very badly. Some of them brought from other Arab countries, some of them brought from the West, um, you know, to fill these jobs that maybe uh, either, you know, the, the, the people in Qatar, the people in Saudi Arabia didn't have the, the skills to do necessarily the training to do um, or were not interested in doing. There's, there are initiatives in all these countries to kind of create uh, or kind of fill those jobs with Gulf nationals, you, you know, to, to kind of counter what is a rising, you know, tr- uh, unemployment really. Um, you know, so there's, there's that, there's this sort of opening of society, uh, you know, something I mentioned earlier, kind of, you know, we're going to do big tech cities and movie theaters and concerts and wrestling and all this stuff so that you can all have a good time. Uh, hopefully, you know, bread and circus in a bread and circuses type of way. Uh, hopefully, so you don't pay attention to the, uh, still, you know, kind of, kind of look the other way on the, on the bad stuff, I guess. But, but um, also, but also like, 
the the I what I what really strikes me about how Vision twenty thirty is being executed in the way that you're talking about, Derek, is that it's being executed in terms of what would I MBS want yeah, to distract me? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, he's sort of he's sort of has his idea of what a you know kind of urbane younger 20s early 30s guy likes uh and he's he's imposing that it's it's a it's a bro kind of a thing um but there are other other things happening you know women have been given the right to drive now and they're relaxing kind of uh the the obligations for women to sort of uh be under a guardian's protection so there's some social changes happening um but it's happening in the context now of an oil price crisis that I don't think the Saudis envisioned. I don't think they envisioned uh, oil prices collapsing as quickly as they have. Certainly they didn't envision uh, the pandemic kind of adding a lot to that, that crisis. Um, So they are starting to finance a lot of this stuff on, on deficits and their budget deficit for 2020 is, is, you know, has skyrocketed uh, past, I think any, uh, any level and, you know, it's the far beyond uh, any deficit they've run in the past. And so it's, it's a, uh, they're, they're in a little bit of a bind and, and I think uh, things are moving a little faster than, than they had anticipated uh, in terms of forcing a transition away from oil. So with, with that in mind, right. With the idea that Saudi has essentially been like caught with its Louis Vuitton pants down, um, we have to then understand like what their investments have meant in the last few years and what they intend to sort of spend going forward. And a lot of that investment, again, like one of the reasons that they invest in SoftBank, one of the reasons that they were one of the first investors in Uber after, and I, and I researched this, after MBS saw the app. What? Yeah, wow. he saw the app in 2015 and was like, well, we'll buy 5% of the company. Hell yeah. <laughs> he just, he just cool looked at the app. app and was like, yep, this is a good app. He's a Matt Hancock guy. <laughs> yeah. He, well, it's like, because like, like, like Matt, Matt Hancock. Hancock. <laughs> because like the, because ultimately like a Matt Hancock person is just like turtle from Entourage, but as an MP, mm. right? Like that's the same guy. Um, MBS is going to try parkour for the first time and it's going to blow <laughs> his mind. <laughs> so they're also a strategic partner of SoftBank because like much of what they want to do is th- there's two there's two levels to this. This kind of investment strategy which is number 1 become a monopolist. That's the first one. Uh with that one just makes sense from that point of view which is we want to control all of transport. Number two is the like delusional asshole tech bro thing, which is like, we want to invent the future, which is, I'm pretty sure, a lot of what's going on here as well. So like, but from a pure returns point of view, if you're trying to invest petrodollars in a world where government bonds have negative returns or a negative, negative or low returns, especially versus your home currency inflation, then like, of course you invest in a monopolist because a company that has a 5% chance of becoming a monopolist is a better investment than a company that has guaranteed uh, a government bond that is guaranteed to lose you 1.8% against yeah, inflation. We, we've guaranteed, like we've built into this, the stupid investments. You have to like throw money away yeah. because just, just otherwise it just backs up. You're making too much of it. Yeah. So effectively, this is 
much as like the first crisis in petrodollar recycling created like Thatcher and Reaganism and created the sort of persistent balance of payments crises that like led to again sort of permanent underdevelopment not not led to but like were the most recent sort of causal force of permanent underdevelop underdevelopment in the developing world and so on um the most recent sort of petrodollar recycling crisis is leading to the funding of completely stupid companies because the idea is if it's a 5% chance of getting a monopoly of creating a monopoly that it can then dominate great so of course you'd invest mil- hundreds of millions of dollars in a dog walking startup because there's a small chance that you could get a few dollars or a few like pounds or whatever it's nominated in from every dog walk that happens in the world so if you have that much money then that's what you have to do like just based on based on the pure logic of the market and so it's no surprise it from that again from that point of reasoning that the PIF is sort of filled with these level of stupid investments. Uh, so in addition to uh, uh, Uber directly, they've invested in Uber twice, uh, one directly and one via funding the Vision Fund, which also invested in Uber and a bunch of other stupid stuff that we've discussed ad nauseum. Um, they also spent a, bought a 67% stake in not Nikola, but a Nikola clone. <laughs> oh, so a clone no. of the Tesla clone called Lucid Motors. Which, as far as I'm aware, has produced about as many electric vehicles as Nikola. <laughs> awesome. Oh, I want to um, meet the kind of guy that names a company Lucid Motors. That rules. Uh, and they kept investing more. They've also invested $400 million pa- in Magic Leap, uh, the alter- me? Uh, like, augmented reality company that was supposed to revolutionize the way we experience the day to day world, but that laid off like half of its staff. Mm, Magic the Leapening. Um, and they also set up a they also set up a number of domestic firms, such as quote the helicopter company, which seems to be a vehicle for buying non-functional Leonardo helicopters. Yes, yes, awesome. That, that's the um fuck the Leonardo is the um the civilianized version of the V twenty two Osprey. <laughs> it, it indeed is. That, um oh, fuck was it Cuomo or Bloomberg? Is like <laughs> this is the only guy in the US the who wants company. one. It's just like yeah, I want the tilt rotor that kills like Marines constantly. I want that, but like to fly around between Manhattan or between Riyadh and Jeddah. <laughs> yeah, awesome, cool. Mm. He just likes killing Marines. No, I'm I'm not I'm not saying necessarily because I don't know if it's those. I know that the helicopter company. <laughs> Which was set up, quote, and I have the quote here from their PR. The company will provide private transportation services within and throughout the main cities, as well as tourist trips to various attractions around the kingdom. The helicopter company will cater to emerging demand in luxury tourism, which is, again, entourage. That's pure entourage thing, where you're just projecting your, like, rich guy perversity on the rest of the mm. world. <laughs> Oh, do you uh, reckon? Because want... like they love they love a workaround, don't they? Do you reckon they think that like that that's a way to like let the infidels do tourism in Mecca? Because if they don't touch the ground, <laughs> they're technically not in Mecca. Yeah, I love to get so, on the Mecca blimp. They say yeah. also an untapped <laughs> exist- a Mecca blimp. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that is absolutely also, the kind of shit that the Saudis would do. Yeah, yeah, it's is disguised it, also, as the and, moon. In, in addition to uh, accessing a a a a a untapped existing demand for urban helicopter transportation so they're trying to be blade they're also buying newcastle they're trying to buy newcastle united which is a, a football cool. team um mm-hmm. 
They've also oh, wait, tried. So, wait, to... hang on. There's going to be a meeting between MBS and Mike Ashley. <laughs> that is some shit. I want to be a fly on the wall for. I'm afraid there have never been my, two more psychotic rich people in the history of the planet. I'm afraid that 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 purchase did not go through oh, because of oh. the uh, unpleasantness with Jamal Khashoggi, the CIA oh, I mean, uh, journalist. Um, oh, we know. No, no one knows what happened to that guy. It could have been. Uh, anything. You walked backwards. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he walked been... into the Saudi embassy and then he moonwalked back out again, backwards, <laughs> and then no one ever saw him That's again. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, Right back to his journalist office in Langley, Virginia, that happens to be in the same building as the CIA. Uh, anyway, yeah, also... It was, it was a rent-sharing initiative. He was trying to keep the overheads down. <laughs> Here's the thing. They also started two companies, the first of which I mentioned before, which is Sami, which is an attempted Saudi version of BAE. So again, like this is just a... An, an attempt to like try to s- stem the amount of money they have to spend through Al Yamama um, to Britain, because again, uh, Derek, as you said, they can't afford it. Hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, at bo- the bottom line is uh, th- they're not bringing in enough revenue now to to afford these grand projects that uh, are are supposed to be part of the the plan. Yeah. Well, but they also they can't afford to keep being like, well. We're going to buy everything BAE Systems makes. We're going to spend right. all the money getting like uh, RAF consultants to load the bombs for us. They don't have the money anymore. Quite simply. That's it. <laughs> Couldn't happen to nicer people, you know? <laughs> uh, so they're trying to build their own company. But like again, like, do they have the... Like, what, do they have the domestic base of expertise? Like that very much remains to be. Let's put it diplomatically. That remains to be seen. Um, and also, here's something really funny. They're also starting something called the Saudi Mortgage Refinancing Company. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so, hey, what do you think about the 2007 crisis? Do you think that all of the factors that led to the 2007 crisis that will keep the Saudi economy going if they can resell mortgages? Let's just mm. not worry about what happened. Yeah. Sure, let's put those together. We can package them up, uh, you know, a yeah. little, uh, yeah, little credit default swap here and there. You know, so I, wanna, I don't, I don't want to say okay. tranches, but maybe slices. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've also, so yeah, they're also creating a company to do. Um, and then again, we're not even talking about what do they call the Giga projects. Uh, here, this is mm. just their sensible investment that they're doing. They're like, yeah, we're going to create Fannie Mae, but for Saudi Arabia, <laughs> a country yeah, that Fannie already that, a country that already is like carefully trying to liberalize its society. We're introducing like punitive lending charges to. Yeah. I, I, I just um, I just like it, the idea that you could be like the. You you see all of the other parts of the Sharia getting discarded, but I'm very into the idea of an Islamist being like, "Wait a second, you're going to do interest?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure it says here that you shouldn't be charging interest. No, well, we're going to do. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're going to do. We're going to do a Sharia compliant version. Yeah, it's an Islamic <laughs> payday no. lender. Everything is fine. Alice, yeah. No. Alice, you need to understand, it's going to be service fees, not interest. <laughs> That's right, yeah. 
Exactly. But yeah. we're still securitizing the shit out. <laughs> yeah, you want the um, you get the payday loan, and then you have to give Mohammed bin Salman a big boat as a gift. Yeah. Not <laughs> I'm technically just, interest. I, I'm still stuck on this idea of like somebody who sees how cynical the Saudis are about every other aspect of Islam, but is like scandalized, like being like, "Wait a second, is he drinking alcohol?" Yeah. So uh, a couple more things. <laughs> They're sat on the Budweiser blimp. Above yeah, Mecca, yeah, wait, going, wait something <laughs> about this really doesn't sit right with me. So um, a, a few more things. Uh, they also have these things called their Giga projects, which we won't go into because we've been going quite long. Um, that includes uh, two projects called the Red Sea Project and the Kadia Project, both of which are like we're going to make Saudi Arabia a tourist destination. Good and luck then with Neom, that. which is like we should devote an entire episode to Neom. Oh, totally. Um. But it's essentially, uh, to put it briefly, it is their uh, city of the future that's going to have an artificial moon, glowing beaches. It was designed by McKinsey, so they just said, yeah, whatever you want, flying taxis, sure. You have a helicopter company, right? Have you played the mm. documentary it- Spec Ops The Line? <laughs> so, um... Hmm. I can't it, it wait just, for them to try and get like package tours from Britain to Saudi Arabia <laughs> so that like Baz can go to Saudi Arabia on holiday and be like, oh, it's fucking all right here, isn't it? Well, you got bangers and mash. And they're like, no, that is haram. And he's like, get me fucking bangers and mash, you can't. <laughs> so, um, but one of the things they did to want to like get people to these various tourist destinations was they, as soon as Carnival Cruise Lines was like, we have no more business, and I think are never trading again, and are purely a pile of liabilities. The Saudis what did is a, a Robin Hood, a miserable pile of liabilities. <laughs> the, Sa- the, Sa- right. the, the Saudi PIF essentially did like what a bunch of idiots on Robin Hood did, and bought an enormous amount of Carnival cruise lines yes. so they could get boats to like plague ships to ferry people to their like white elephant tourist projects in the deep desert. We'd love to see it. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, Derek, I, d- is that is that about the size of it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there's a there's a dark side to some of this stuff. I mean, you mentioned uh, Pedia, which is sort of a, a plan to build like a giant amusement park in Riyadh, which is <laughs> is just strange. I mean, they, they, literally, you know, the first one of the first projects there is is a Six Flags project, <laughs> like amusement park. <laughs> They're gonna get the six flag um, guy in a niqab. There, there, there's the a five plan flags to... of Islam. <laughs> six flags, all black. <laughs> <laughs> there's a plan to develop like a Red Sea resort kind of thing along the lines of, um, you know, what what um, the Egyptians have at Sharm el Sheikh and at Sharm el Sheikh and uh, in the Sinai and the Southern Sinai, um, and but Neom is is a really interesting um, and and not altogether just kind of funny. Parts of it are very funny. Don't get me wrong, um, but it, it, the story there. I mean, this this is a, a city that. Uh, would occupy a, a big chunk of like the far northwestern corner of the kingdom, and the intention actually was initially. I don't know if it's still uh, that's still the case. Um, is to uh, expand it into Jordan, into part of Jordan, southern Jordan, and into uh, part of the southern Sinai. So into Egypt, it would be it would kind of span the uh, the borders. There's no oh, land border between <laughs> the United Saudi Arab Republic. Egypt, lives. They would, you know, you they know? would fix this. <laughs> um, 
We did too much tech and we accidentally brought NASA back and he's pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, what is it? It's, um, it, it's radio of the Arabs, but it's a podcast. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I think, I think part of it is, is, well, I, I, I don't know what the, the rationale really is other than to sort of, you know, in, increase the, the level of enthrallment that Jordan and Egypt have to Saudi Arabia, which is, uh, obviously a political thing. Uh, but they, I mean, that project has struggled quite a bit, um, since the, the Khashoggi, the Khashoggi assassination. Uh, you know, they lost a lot of investors uh, that they were, you know, or people they were hoping to invest uh, in this project as a result of that. Uh, you know, to some degree, we've kind of swept that under the rug now. So I, I assume, you know, some people are coming back, but I don't I don't know that uh, to be the case. But the, the, the real dark side of this project that, that doesn't get a lot of attention is there are people living in this part of Saudi Arabia, the uh, the Hoetat tribe. Um, and, and they've lived there for, you know, uh, generations. Uh, they were told that, uh, when the Saudis built Neom, or at least they, they claim they were told when, uh, when Neom was built, you know, the, the, the Hoetat would, uh, see, you know, a lot of, uh, development, they'd get jobs in Neom, you know, their people would get, get jobs in this region. And, uh, you know, they, they'd have a lot of, uh, wealth kind of flowing into the region that would, would accrue to the tribe. Instead, uh, what's happened is they've been offered like, you know, Saudi, government went in and offered them like some ridiculous pittance, like 2,500 bucks or something. I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was a ridiculously low amount of money to leave, to just clear out. Um, and, and, you know, obviously many of them have said, no, we're not leaving. Uh, and so, you know, the Saudis have sent security forces in there. There's, uh, you know, a man named uh, Alia Abu Taya al Hwaiti, uh, who was killed uh, by Saudi security forces, allegedly. Uh, um, you know, he, he was killed by Saudi security forces ostensibly, uh, because he supposedly had, uh, was amassing weapons and, uh, you know, doing some nefarious thing The the, the local, uh, you know, tribes, tribal leaders say he was set up that the Saudis planted, uh, evidence to sort of justify going in and, and taking out this guy who was very vocal, um, you know, kind of about this, the treatment of, of their tribe, whether they see any, Compensation at all for that is is uh, far from clear, but it, it's going to be a, a a displacement of of this group of people that have no political power, obviously, and are, and are just sort of uh, going to lose their land as a result of this project. So it's it's there is this kind of uh, very ugly dark side to the Neon project that that unfortunately exists, but it's sort of par for the course, I guess, in Saudi Arabia that there's there's always uh, some nefarious stuff going on behind the scenes. So I think that's um, that's as good a place as any as any to end it. Um, just uh, if you want to take anything away from this, is just to I, I think there there there's quite a bit going on here. There's a lot to do with like foreign policy and like the development of the right of like sort of if you might say like um, just the general rights of people in the Gulf, but also like. To understand sort of what the forces are eliminating, for example, if you work for Uber, uh, your rights uh, in the West, and yeah, it it, it, it is it, the same uh, the same struggle, just a different facets yeah. of it. Um, and and it goes, and it also I think 
if you want to ask the question of why things are stupid, you can't not include petrodollars. Sort of petrodollars. Yeah, you can't, you, you can't not include petrodollars. That's a massive part of it. And there has been a huge history of petrodollars that has gone from the investment we talked about earlier to all of the investments we've been talking about in the last sort of 30 or so minutes. Yeah. So um, petrodollars I guess is I just also my third wife. I guess I, I, I just want to say uh, to, to Derek, thank you very, very much for coming on and talking to us today. Uh, I have had a lovely time um, discussing this nonsense with you. <laughs> sure. Happy to do it. Um, Thanks for having me. And just as a reminder, our next uh, live show Derek. is in Jeddah. <laughs> <laughs> as a reminder, uh, you can find Derek on foreign exchanges, or you can subscribe to the Discontents newsletter. I strongly recommend you do both. Mm. Um, and uh, also, uh, this is going to be a free episode, so don't forget we have a Patreon, five bucks a month. You know the deal. Yeah, you uh, got to rhyme on the moon blimp. <laughs> yeah, you can you can ride on our delicious moon blimp. Join Great me in the moon America. blimp, Mister Chop. <laughs> yes. Mister Mister Bin Salman, have you ever been in the moon blimp? <laughs> the, the laws of Islam don't apply on the moon blimp. <laughs> to a different podcast. <laughs> Beautiful. So our, Beautiful, our theme tremendous. song also is is Here We Go. Uh, by, <laughs> no, our, our, refer, our, our theme song is the Entourage theme song by Entourage. You yeah, can Entourage it. it at any Entourage you might Entourage. Listen to it very um, strongly. Listen to it very strongly. And we'll see you all in the bonus on Thursday. Don't forget to listen mm -hmm. to 10K Post while there's your problem. The Russian podcast, if Absolutely. you speak Russian. Too much uh, Hell of a way to die. All the usual. And uh, we will speak to you soon. Maybe yeah. our website will be live by the time this is released. Ooh. Maybe it won't. Mm. <laughs> mm. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Latest. Later.